Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here at worship this morning. I hope that you've been blessed thus far during our time together. But I want to start out, I think this is fitting. I just want to direct your attention to this arrangement here in front of the pulpit. This was put here by the, Tom, uh, the family of Tommy Ferguson in honor of his memory. And I was, uh, had the honor of officiating uh, his services. And I will tell you that it was very spirit-filled. Tommy's heart was that the gospel would be preached. And we were able to share the fact that Tommy um, was responsible for leading his own father to the Lord. Um, his father was a, 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 an atheist or an agnostic, uh, was against God, against those things. And Tommy was so burdened for his dad that he got his pastor at the time, Johnny Tiller, to go. And they went to visit. And uh, that day, Tommy's dad came to know the Lord. So uh, we talked about in that service that Tommy was able to take his dad to heaven with him. So just know that today you can take something to heaven with you, and I hope and pray that you take a lot of people with you. Um, this has been a difficult week for our church because we've had, uh, today will be the fourth funeral that we've had this week, people associated with our church. Um, uh, brother Curtis Hips uh, lost his brother. Um, brother Steve Bryant lost his father. Um, Miss Peggy Ferguson lost her husband. And then Valerie Sell lost her husband, and that service will be today at 2. So if you can, reach out to these families and love on them. That's what church family's for, and that's what it's all about. And today, we're going to talk about the rapture of the church. And the rapture of the church is good news for those who have lost loved ones. It's good news for us, because it means that one day, all those that we've lost, including ourselves, if we know Jesus, will rise from the dead, and death will have no place over us. So today, if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Guys, I think the pulpit mic might be on. I'm getting a little bit of feedback a little bit. Thank y'all. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. If you will, stand to your feet as we read God's word. So if you've been to any funerals lately, you're probably going to have heard this passage spoken of. This is a passage of great hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13, the Bible says this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. God, I love you so much. And Lord, I'm thankful for this congregation. I'm thankful, God, for my brothers and sisters who are faithful to your house, who saw fit to come to your house to worship today. God, I pray that as we look at your word, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you would ignite our passion for the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would not be happy with being silent. Lord, I pray that just like Jeremiah said, that you would be like a fire shut up in our bones that we cannot contain and that we must let out. 
Lord, I pray that that fire would ignite us to reach our community, to reach Candler, North Carolina, to reach Asheville, to reach our state, our nation, and our world. Lord, we know that we are here to make a difference, and we pray, Jesus, that we would always understand that only the gospel can make the difference in a lost and a dying world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all may be seated. So in our series, The Last Day, The Last Days, you know, we've talked about the beginnings of sorrows. Now we're talking about the rapture of the church. And what I'm wanting to do is to have a timeline that we go through to help you wrap your mind about the events that are going to take place as we approach the last days. In no way am I trying to say I can predict when Jesus is coming back. There have been many people before me who have tried to do that, and I assure you that they have all failed. There's been several books, I think, written, why, so many reasons why Jesus will come back this year, so many reasons why Jesus is going to come back this year, and every time the year comes and goes, and they were wrong. We were not intended to predict. All we were asked to do is to understand, to be sober, that the time is coming, that there's going to be a day when Jesus comes back. He splits the eastern sky, and he calls his children home. So I wanted to bring to your attention an experiment that once took place. Now, this is considered a conspiracy theory, and I don't, I'm not one to propagate conspiracy theories, but I believe it's an excellent example of what we're trying to see here about the rapture. It was called the Philadelphia Experiment, if any of you remember some talk about that. It is one of the most grotesque military urban legends ever, and it has endured as an infamous World War II conspiracy theory. But is there any truth to it? The writer of this article says, let's take a look. According to legend, on October the 28th, 1943, the USS Eldridge, a cannon-class destroyer escort, was conducting top-secret experiments designed to win command of the oceans against the Axis powers. The rumor was that the government was creating technology that would render naval ships invisible to enemy radar, and there in the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, it was time to test it out. Witnesses claim an eerie green-blue glow surrounded the hull of the ship as her generators spun up, and then suddenly the Eldridge disappeared. The ship was then seen in Norfolk Naval Shipyard in Virginia before disappearing again and reappearing back in Philadelphia. The legend states that classified military documents reported that the Eldridge crew were affected by the events in disturbing ways. Some went insane, others developed mysterious illnesses, but others still were said to have been fused together with the ship, still alive, but with limbs sealed to the metal. Pretty crazy story, huh? But the whole idea here is that the story goes that the ship disappeared. It left Philadelphia, appeared in the Virginia Naval Shipyard, and then appeared back in Philadelphia. And I think disappearance of things, material things, has always intrigued mankind. Any good magician is going to have some sort of a disappearing act in his show. You know, they have the big thing where somebody will walk into a box, they'll cl close it, they'll say something, they'll wave their wand, they open the box, and they're gone. Well, we know there's always tricks and stuff like that behind that. But there's something intriguing about disappearing about something being there one moment and then being gone the next. Well, the rapture is just that. What the Bible teaches of the rapture is that very thing, that those who know the Lord Jesus Christ will be here one day, the next day they're gone. 
And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the account of that evidence, but not just here. We're going to see evidence of the rapture throughout Scripture. One thing that we have to be careful of, and this is a rule when it comes to church doctrine, to doctrine of the Bible, is that you never formulate a doctrine on just one passage of Scripture. There needs to be a continuous flow throughout the Bible that points back to the evidence that that is the case. Sometimes if we take an obscure passage and we try to develop a doctrine, a lot of times that's how many of your cults have begun, by the way, is they have taken one little verse of Scripture and they've tried to determine and create an entire doctrine from that, and it's thrown them way off base. So we're not like that here at Pole Creek. We believe in the flow of Scripture. We believe letting Scripture testify of itself and interpret itself. We believe that the Bible is completely perfect in all ways from Genesis to Revelation. It's a complete flow of the understanding and narrative of the world's need for God, the character of God, who we are as, as mankind. And we are very careful to adhere to what the Bible says. So as we talk about the rapture, one thing that a lot of people are going to tell you is, is Ben, the term rapture is never mentioned in the Bible. That's going to be one of their biggest arguments against the rapture. Believe it or not, there are a lot of good Christians out there who believe that Jesus died and rose again, who will be in heaven with us one day, and who, by the way, will be caught up in the rapture who don't believe in the rapture. Did you know that? There's a lot of people who, believe, who don't believe it's going to take place. Uh, they're known as amillennialists, and they're Christians. They believe the gospel. Many come from the Reformed uh, traditions of um, uh, conservative Presbyterianism, Reformed Baptists. They believe these types of things, and, and their es eschatology, and what that is, is that's just the study of end times. Their eschatology is known as an amillennialist eschatology. They don't believe literally the book of Revelation, but they believe it's symbolic. Well, here at Pole Creek, if you've ever seen a copy of our statement of faith, um, we do adhere to a specific end of times understanding. We are what's known as premillennial dispensationalists. That's a huge word. I've told you before, you'll probably never use that again. There may be a few of those pieces of paper still in the backs of those seats, though, if you want an explanation about what that is. But we believe in a literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. We believe that it is a sequence of events that take place in an order. We believe that this order is, is, can be measured out in a timeline of undetermined uh, time periods other than the seven-year tribulation and the 1,000-year millennial reign. But we believe that it is a literal uh, revelation from God, from the Holy Spirit, given to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos for our own benefit today. And we understand that the main character throughout the book of Revelation and throughout end times is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that Greek word there... Um, that we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, caught up. This is where we get the word rapture from. So no, the word rapture is not actually spelled out in the Bible, but the term caught up is. And what that is, is that is um, in the original Greek, the word there used for caught up was translated into Latin as the word rapturo, which is where we get our modern-day English word rapture from. So no, it's not spelled out specifically in Scripture, but it has the same connotation, and it is rooted in the understanding of different languages. So today we're going to talk about the rapture. So if you're taking notes, again, we provide sermon notebooks at our welcome centers. If you ever need one of those to take notes in, those are available to you free of charge. But if you're taking notes, the first thing that we want to see about the rapture is the people of the rapture. The people of the rapture. And we're going to find that beginning in verses 13 and 14 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So let's read those again. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You know, we think about the Vietnam War sometimes. You know, that was a huge event in the history of our country. A war that lasted many, many years. A war that was very bloody and and very difficult. One that affected many men long after they came back from the war. Um, You know, the suicide rate among Vietnam veterans is through the roof. I mean, just a, a horrible conflict. But we're so thankful we even have in our midst today Vietnam veterans. And I'm so thankful for the price that those men paid. I believe that was probably the last generation of real men that we'll ever see in our society. And I want to thank you men for that. But you know, in the Vietnam War, there was this thing called the draft. And listen, there were so many people dying in the Vietnam War that there, were, there was a bad shortage of troops. And they had to have you know, some way to generate new troops. And really, the draft was not even new for the Vietnam War. It had been utilized in the Civil War. It had been utilized in World War I and World War II. Well, they decided to reinstate the draft in the Vietnam War and begin to draft young men. So it was a way for the selective service system to add badly needed troops to the conflict. And if you're a young man today, 18 years old, by law, you are to register with the selective services. I remember that I had to do that when I was 18. And and every man that's an American citizen who's a legal resident, and actually even illegal residents uh, actually is in our law, have to um, register for the selective services. I know that's kind of ironic. But not everyone was eligible for the draft, and and that's something that was very important. Women were not eligible for the draft. Women were not entered into the draft. That was just not something that was acceptable. They believed that the men should fight the wars. Um, Men who were younger than 18 or men who were older than 26 could not be drafted. They had to fit within that time frame between the ages of 18 and 26. There were also people known as conscientious objectors. These were people who maybe were a part of a religion who forbade them, forbade them to go to war. Um, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses couldn't go to war. Uh, many uh, Muslims did not go. I think Muhammad Ali was one of those that they said due to their religion, they could not go to war, so they were exempt from the draft. Uh, certain health conditions would have exempted you from the draft, such as diabetes. The, the military would not have taken you if you had diabetes at that time. Um, Maybe it was someone, a man who was necessary for the well-being of his children. He had children to raise and the husband was the sole um, provider of income. Those men were exempt as well. Homosexuals could not serve in the military. Uh, And if you were in college, you would not have been able to be drafted either. So just like the draft would not take just any man, not everyone will be caught up together with the Lord in the rapture. We have to be very careful to understand that Christianity, and I know this is a bad word, but Christianity is exclusive. What I mean by that is not everyone gets to go to heaven by means of Christianity. Only those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, based upon his death, burial, and resurrection, get to go to heaven. Only those get to partake in the sacrifice of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is an exclusive faith in that only certain people go to heaven. Okay, we don't, we're not universalists. We're not inclusivists, which means, well, everybody gets to, somehow if they're sincere in their beliefs and their faith, you know, whether they believe in Buddha or, or uh, Allah or whoever it may be, they get to go to heaven. No, we don't believe that in Christianity. We are an exclusive faith, and that is biblical. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. Jesus is the only way. So who will be taken in the rapture? Who will be qualified to get to go? Well, the key phrases in these verses are going to reveal that to us. First of all, we're going to see if we believe Jesus died and rose again. 
if we believe in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. First of all, the first qualification for you to be gone in the rapture, for you to be taken to meet the Lord Jesus in the air, is that you must be born again. Now, the rapture is this. It is a time that we don't know. The Bible does not say exactly when it will happen. There are many phrases and uses, even in 1 Corinthians 15, that say it's kind of a mystery when it will happen. Um, it's also different uh, passages in the Bible call it a time like a thief in the night, um, when unexpectedly it'll happen. So, so the rapture is that time when Jesus himself will not set foot on earth, by the way. That's why we, as premillennial dispensationalists, believe there is a difference between the rapture, the event of the rapture, and the event of the second coming of the Lord. We don't believe those two are the same because Jesus never sets foot on earth in the rapture. The Bible specifically says that we are caught up together to meet him in the air. That those who are uh, alive and remain, those who have already passed away and are buried in the graves, their bodies will rise first. And then those who are alive and remain, those of us who know Jesus but have not yet died, will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So the rapture and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ are indeed different events. So we see there that, yes, you must believe in the Lord Jesus to go in the rapture. If you don't, you will be left behind. The dead in Christ will go to be with the Lord in the air. These are people, again, who have lived their lives for Jesus, have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, and have already passed away. You know, we have cemeteries all over this countryside. You don't have to go very far without seeing a cemetery. When you come to church every Sunday morning, more than likely you've seen two cemeteries, Pole Creeks and Snow Hills. There's no secret that Forest Lawn is, is, is filling itself up quicker and quicker every day. Every day you drive by that massive cemetery, you see a tent that's got the name of a funeral home on it because another person has passed away. Cemeteries are everywhere. Well, I will tell you this, that if you have a loved one who has gone to be with the Lord, their spirit at the moment of their death leaves their body. Paul even said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So their body is dead, but the scripture here refers to it as asleep. And the reason the scripture there is referring to those who have gone on to be with the Lord as their bodies in the grave being asleep is because they're not going to stay there forever. There's going to come a time and a place where they burst out of those graves and they are resurrected. When you go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that is the most um, exhaustive description of our doctrine of the resurrection. And what I mean by resurrection is the dead being raised to life. Jesus there, it says, is the first fruits of our resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a perfect model of what our resurrection is going to look like. The Bible teaches us that because Jesus rose from the dead, all those who believe in Jesus will also be raised just like he was. So we see that Jesus was in a tomb, and that one day he was in the tomb, the next day the tomb was empty. That's the same way that our resurrection will be, those of us who, who die before the coming of the Lord. One day there will be a body in that casket, one day there won't be. Those of you who choose to be cremated... One day your ashes will be in that urn, or one day your ashes may be spread over a body of water. One day your ashes will be present in that urn or present on this earth. The next day, the Holy Spirit will bring those together and raise you to, the, to be with him. No matter what, the Bible teaches us that even the dead in the ocean will be resurrected. All people 
will be resurrected in that day who know the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also see that not only the dead who are in Christ, but those who are still alive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 52, you're welcome to turn there if you'd like, or at least make a note of this uh, verse. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 15, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. Here we've got two different groups of people. We've got the dead in Christ and we've got those who are alive in Christ. And just as the dead will be resurrected from their graves the day that the rapture takes place, also those of us who are alive and remain will be resurrected to meet Jesus in the air. At that moment, we will receive what is known as our glorified bodies. See, heaven is going to be a physical place. Okay, I want you to understand that. Sometimes we think of heaven as just this spiritual world where there's like these glowing orbs and people are floating around on clouds or playing our harps. And that's not heaven, okay? Heaven is a physical world, a world that you need your senses to enjoy, a place where you can touch and feel, a place where it is required that you have a physical body. You know, right now, those who have gone on, they're in what is known as the second heaven, Okay, But one day, the Bible teaches us that a new heaven and a new earth will be created by God. That the holy city of Jerusalem will descend from heaven, and literally this earth will be quenched by fire in the very, very end of times. And the new heaven will actually be on this earth. Did you know that? Some people say, well, you know, this isn't my home. Well, you're right. The current condition of the earth is not our home. But one day, we're going to be back here. We're going to go to heaven for a while. All the end of time scenarios are going to play out and then the earth will be destroyed by fire and the new heaven and the new earth will be created. There's still going to be dirt in heaven. Did you know that? There's still going to be things that you can eat in heaven. You're still going to get to laugh and have fun with those that you love and know. You're actually going to know them as they were known here, the Bible says. It's not going to be like you don't recognize everyone. It's not going to be just some dull place where everyone's wearing their white robes. No, it's going to be a place that you get to enjoy. And you know what's so special about it? No more sin, no more pain, no more death, no more hurt. And if you want to talk to Jesus, you don't have to kneel on your knees to pray for him. You can actually walk up to him and talk to him. You can see him face to face. So that's the beauty of what we have to look forward to as believers. And that gives you a whole different perspective on death. It gives you a whole different perspective on even this life that we're currently living. It is temporary. And yes, it's hard. And yes, we suffer. But you know what? What should get us through each and every day is the promise of God that we are not going to be here in this state forever. The great day of resurrection, the great rapture is coming based upon the authority of the word of God. So if you're taking notes, the first thing we saw is the people of the rapture. It'll be only those who know Jesus, whether they're dead or whether they're alive, it doesn't matter. If they know Jesus, they're going in the rapture. The second thing that I want you to know about the rapture is what it's going to sound like. The sound of the rapture. Now you may say, Ben, that's kind of odd, but it will have a specific sound when it takes place. We find this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in the ver- first part of verse 16. Here's what it says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. So we have three different distinct descriptions of either a sound or multiple sounds. And the reason I say that that way is because there's differing opinions among scholars about if that's actually three separate sounds that will take place or if it's actually descriptions of one sound that'll take place. Regardless, I think it's going to be awesome. Back when I was in high school, I drove a 1984 Mazda pickup truck. 
And if you went to school with me, you remember this truck. My dad drove it back and forth to Wilson Art for about 20 years because he bought it brand new in 1984. And then I got to drive it as a senior in high school. Just a little five-speed, four-cylinder truck. But every morning when I drove to school at Inca High, along with most of Candler, the whole school would have known Ben Heisey has arrived. And I'm going to tell you why. You said, well, Ben, did you have 15-inch subs? And, you know, you know, were you playing some music? No, that was not it. It literally sounded like a cannon going off when I got to school because that truck backfired like no other. Like no other. And, you know, you hear little pops and cracks here. No, this was a cannon. And if you had been standing behind the truck when it happened, it would have felt like somebody just dropped a grenade 10 feet from you. That's the impact of the sound. If you were to follow me at night, you would have seen a blue flame probably about that long shoot out the tailpipe. <laughs> and I had it down just right. And my dad actually taught me to do this, even though he kind of told me not to do it too much. <laughs> but what you do is you throw it in second gear, you wind it out a little bit, and then right when that engine rounds out uh, you know, quite a few RPMs, just let off the gas. And it'll go, ba 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 boom! <laughs> and man, I had so much fun with that. I almost gotten beat up a few times, too. Uh, <laughs> Even my dad told me a story. Uh, he, he was just as much to blame, so you know where I got it from. But he was coming from work one, one morning. This lady just checked her mail, and he decided to let that thing backfire, and he did. He said it was like mail was just raining down, where she had thrown it up, and she had gotten down, you know. But anyways, that Mazda truck had a specific sound, okay? And that's, what I'm trying to get, that's the point I'm trying to make here, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> but... The rapture is going to be the same way. There's going to be a distinct sound of the rapture. So when we think through that, we know it's going to be majestic and it's going to be awesome. And when I go back to verse 16, what I truly believe in my heart is that it is going to be the trumpet of God and that all of those sounds are going to be what it will be compared to. That the trumpet of God will blast and it will be like a shout, and it will sound like an archangel's voice. It will be so beautiful, and it will be so dramatic, and it will be so loud and unavoidable. Even in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, you see that in the process of the timeline in, in Revelation, that you see a glimpse of what the rapture is going to look like in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Now, if you're not paying close attention, you're going to run by it, and you're not going to notice this. But this is what the Apostle John said as the Holy Spirit was revealing to him the book. After this, John said, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. You know what's interesting about Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 is it's literally the next verse after the church is spoken of. In, ver in, in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation, it's the church, the church, the church. The different churches in, in that area of the world at that time. But then all of a sudden the church is mentioned no more. And you have Revelation 4.1 and it speaks about and after these things. In other words, after the events of the New Testament church. After these have gone and now we're moving into this next period of time. I heard a sound like a trumpet. A voice like a trumpet. So here we understand that, listen, there is going to be that sound that takes place. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, the Bible says this, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. The rapture will have a specific sound. So when we think through that, we see even in Thessalonians 4.16 that those three different sounds are found in other parts of the Bible. 
The shout is referred to in Revelation 4.1 and Revelation 1.10. The, the voice of the archangel we know to be Michael, or perhaps there are multiple archangels, but we find that in Jude verse 9. And then we see the trumpet of God mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Revelation chapter 4. So what do we need to be doing? We need to be waiting for that trumpet to sound. We need to be listening and opening our ears. Lord, when are you going to blow that trumpet? Lord, when is it going to happen? Lord, when are we going home? It's important to be sober. It's important to be aware. It's important to not let yourself be lulled to sleep by the evil and the wickedness that's happening in our world today. We need to be ready. We need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. You know the best way to be ready? Number one, make sure you're saved. Make sure you've trusted in Jesus. And number two, make sure your family and your friends and your neighbors and your loved ones are saved. And that's how you can be ready for the coming of the Lord. So the third thing that I want you all to write down if you're taking notes is the order of the rapture. Now see, our God is a God of order. Our God is not a God of chaos. That's why in our worship services, we believe in having some sort of an order of service. No, we don't put our order of service in bulletins anymore. No, we don't do all that. But we still have an order of service because a chaotic worship service is not going to do anyone any good. We've got to have some sort of order so that we can have a structure to where we can communicate and we can reach the goals that we've set forth in our worship services. But here, even in the rapture, because of who God is, he's a God of order, he has a specific order to the rapture. We find that in verses 15 and 16 and then also into 17. Beginning in verse 15, For we say this to you by a word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. You know, when you look at creation, when you look even at the human body, you're not just a bag of cells that evolved. You are a very intricately designed being. Even scientists will not object to the fact that your DNA is a written code. Literally, it has a pattern and it has a language of its own. Now, now listen, evolution doesn't create order. An evolutionist would say that the world and the universe was in chaos. And then because of an act of random chance, all the chaos came into order. That's insane. That's absolute, and there's also no way to gauge that. When did that happen? How did that happen? And who can prove that that happened? Nobody, by the way. Evolution is not science. Evolution is a religion. It's a form of atheism that's propagated as though it is science. So, you know, if, if you're taught that it's um, part of biology or if you're part, taught that it's part of, you know, earth science or whatever, that's false. That is, evolution has nothing to do with science. It is a made-up belief system to justify not having a God. Because in reality, you can't make sense of science. You can't make sense of the universe. You can't make sense of planet Earth and how it functions without there being a God. Because God started with order. And that's how we get to enjoy what we have today. But God's order is then thrown into chaos because of sin. And we're starting to see that in our society. You know, God, part of God's order is marriages between one man and one woman. And that's how you raise children. And that's how you, you, you bring up the next generation to continue to, to have those godly principles and to continue to understand morality and things that are good. But when you begin to throw out the simple uh, basis of God's family order, you start to see chaos in our society. And what I mean by chaos is, is that you never thought that you might get smacked for calling a man a man. You never thought that somebody would have an issue with you saying, uh, yes, ma'am, thank you, and come to find out it's a man. 
You, you, that's chaos, by the way. When, 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 our, when the language that we've embraced for thousands of years, the English language, begins to break down, and we can't use simple pronouns to refer to people who were born a certain uh, sex, that's when chaos enters in to the order that God initiated. That's why in Genesis 1.27, the Bible teaches us that God created man in his own image. He created them male and female. Guess what, how many genders are there in the Bible? Two, not 22. Dos, man and woman. And when you get away from that, my friends, you've got some chaos. Listen, it didn't start chaotic. It started with the order of God. And because of man's incompetency, man's selfishness, man's lust, we now have chaos in our society. It's chaotic. So we understand that we have a God of order and that his order is absolutely beautiful. So when will it take place and who will go first? Well, even in Matthew chapter 24, one of the greatest prophetic chapters in the Bible says this. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, so don't try to predict it. Neither the angels of heaven nor the Son except the Father alone. Isn't that interesting? As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in a field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So we know that it's going to be an hour when we do not expect, but we know that there's going to be order to it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you want to make this note, verses 1 through 10 say this. About these times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake. And be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. And put on the armor of faith and love. And a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep. We may live together with him. Whether you're passed away already when the rapture comes or whether you're still alive when the rapture comes, it does not matter. If you know Jesus and you've obtained salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, you will live together with him. The order of who goes first is made clear very quickly that those who have gone before, passed away before us will go first. Even 1 Corinthians 15 makes that same statement. So we know that the rapture has an order, but lastly, and this is what I want us to end with, the comfort of the rapture. We find this in verse 18. Listen, God's word is not teaching us about the rapture so that we can make predictions. He's not telling us about the rapture so that we can be doomsday preppers and you know prep underground for the, for the coming of the end of time. No, he's telling us this stuff, believe it or not, to comfort us. 
You may say, well, Ben, sometimes that's, it's hard to be comforted when you're telling me that the world is going to end, when you tell me that these things are going to happen. But the key here is that God is in control and that he cannot lie. And when he saved you from your sin, he did not finish the work immediately right then. But there is going to be a glorification that's going to come when you are going to receive a glorified body. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that we have already been glorified. And what it's saying is, it's not that you've already received that glorified body that you're going to live in heaven with forever and ever, but it's as good as done because God can't lie. Because it is so sure and it is so foundational that you can mark it, you can go ahead and say that it's already happened because it's so sure that it will happen. We have already been glorified because God's word cannot be denied. So why is Paul talking about this? It's so that we can comfort one another. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 54, the Bible says this, When this corruptible body, the bodies that we all have now, is clothed with incorruptibility, the time of the rapture, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality at the beginning of the rapture, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. They don't exist anymore for the believer. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I want you to know today that you can be comforted because of the rapture that's coming and you can know that your work in the Lord is not in vain. Maybe you've told your loved ones a hundred times about Jesus and they reject it every single time. Well, I can't help but think about Tommy where his dad had probably rejected the gospel several times. I mean, he lived in the mountains of western North Carolina. It wasn't like there wasn't a church on every street corner. I'm sure he had neighbors who were Christians. I'm sure he knew preachers in the community. He had heard the gospel time and time again. But you know what? Tommy was not satisfied with letting that lie as it was. He continued, and he shared the gospel with his dad. And guess what? His work was not in vain. His dad is in heaven today because of that. You may be giving up on your family members. You may be trying to give up on your friends, on your neighbors. Don't quit. Remember, we got to stay alert and we got to stay sober. And until the Lord comes back, let's not stop telling people about the Lord Jesus. You know, here at Pole Creek, we have a vision. And our vision is to be a church that propels our community and our world into an encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our purpose my friends. Listen, you're already saved. If you know Jesus as your Savior, and I'm not saying everyone here is saved, maybe there's someone who's lost, but if you do know Jesus as your Savior, your eternity is nailed down. But you're still here for a reason. God's not done with you. He wants to use you as a mouthpiece to see people get saved. He wants to use you as a mouthpiece to infiltrate a lost and a dying community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not be naive about this. Candler is ridden with drug use. Candler is, is just full of, of, of domestic violence. Candler is just slammed full of hopelessness, of teen pregnancy, of so many things that we as Christians must tell the gospel about because only the gospel will fix those things. Therefore, in verse 11, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. And that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. So I don't know about you, but I'm excited about the rapture. I'm excited that I get to go. It wasn't anything that I did that's going to get me to heaven. It's not because I'm a good person. It's not because I'm a preacher. 
It's because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God Almighty took on flesh and was willing to take my beating, to take my shame, to take my humiliation, to be spit in the face for me, to be punched in the face for me, to be beaten so horribly that his organs were hanging out of his back, to die on a criminal's cross for me, for an old sinner like me. You ever, you, you ever want to know what true love is? That's true love. And Jesus did it for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's bow our heads this morning.